0: Whoa. Hi, and welcome to this Startup Sales Growth Podcast series. I'm your host, Nikolai Bador. At my agency, Bador Business Group, we recruit and build high-growth sales teams for technology companies. Over the years, we've worked with companies big and small, and what we found is that almost all businesses just getting off the ground struggle to create consistent revenue growth, and they know without it, they'll cease to exist. This is why we partnered up with Tech.mn to create a four-part sales series that will teach you One, how to get those first meetings when no one knows who you are. Two, how to turn those meetings into loyal, paying customers. Three, once you have this process down, how to build a sales team to execute it. And four, how to keep that team motivated and inspired during the ebb and flows of a startup. You are listening to episode two, how to turn these new meetings into loyal, paying customers. You're about to hear from top local minds who have walked this walk and are eager to share their secrets. But before we do... I want to thank our sponsor, Fuel Collective, for sharing Studio Cocoa with us and their financial support. Fuel Collective is the new standard for blending work, play, and wellness, all under one roof. Fuel Collective is a social lifestyle club and a co-working space where everything you need to take your life to the next level is right at your fingertips. Interested in learning more? Of course you are. So visit them at fueledcollective.com for more information. All right, are you ready? Let's jump into episode two.
1: I need electrifying.
0: Welcome to a live studio recording from Studio Coco. This is episode two of our four part series, Startup Sales Growth. And sitting across the table from me are two of tech's best closers in the field today. As a conversion specialist myself, I cannot wait to learn from you guys. Uh, Listeners, you guys are in for a treat. So, in true form, I want to make sure that the people, you guys, the listeners, know exactly who you're going to be learning from today. These two are truly um, some of the most inspirational people in my life, but also. Two two closers that walk the walk currently and are at the top of their game. So get ready to get ready to learn, Lindsay McCracken. All right. So before starting this little startup journey of mine, um, I was an IBMer, and Lindsay McCracken was my idol. Still is. Uh, we would take up on deals, and I would witness closing greatness at its finest. I've seen her take a stalled client to five million dollars in over year revenue. I've experienced her selling three point five million to folks that had absolutely no interest. In IBM cloud and year over year I would see her name at the top of the leaderboard boasting 200% year-over-year year quota statistics and I got to tell you as a big data company at IBM they know their shit uh, they throw numbers out because they believe that those are realistic and Lindsay consistently blows them out of the water I am so happy to have you here I, I to share your gift with the world is exciting so thank you thank you next to her is Jason Mitzo, who from now on I'm going to just be referring to as the Mitz, Mitzo, Lord Mitz, uh, something like that. So Mitzow and I also worked together uh, while at Oracle, and I saw him basically wallpaper his office with awards before leaving that world to focus on tech startups, way before it was cool, right? I followed him long after he made it safe for everyone else. But since he has built flourishing revenue streams for tech darlings like Valero, Advocate, The Social 360, all while taking vision to international growth by increasing their average deal size by 10x as their chief revenue officer. He has closed business with marquee clients like Capella, Lifetime Fitness, Ameriprise, Aveda, U.S. Bank, and more, and how there isn't a Netflix series about this man, I have no idea. So welcome, you guys. Thank you, man. Did I miss anything? No. Nothing? It's a good start. Yeah? <laughs> Thank you, sir.
1: <laughs> no pressure.
0: Yeah, no pressure. <laughs> so, as you guys know, we talked about this most of our listeners, not all, are, are starting out. And even the ones that are, are not starting out are probably in a spot where maybe revenue stalled. And so in this series, where we're at is, okay, so they've created a product or service, and they learned in episode one how to, how to get meetings with, with absolutely no street cred. Like, right? no, no one's ever heard of these, these folks, and now they're getting meetings. And so what we're going to talk about today is once they, they have those meetings, They're trying to close down their first deal, right? They're trying to develop a consistent process to do so. So as a pair that I've had the pleasure of working with and seeing firsthand your closing expertise, what advice can you offer them?
1: Uh, Be willing to ask the tough questions. So it might might not be very comfortable, but you definitely have to ask if people are actually interested in buying something that you're selling or if they're just interested in learning more about what you know. So I think that's a big key thing that when I look at, okay, where am I going to spend my time? I'm going to spend my time where I know people are actually interested and have the money to spend on whatever I'm providing.
0: I don't want to jump the gun because I want to hear your qualification, but before we get there, would you mind just, you know, a couple of those questions, right? A couple of questions to, because that's...
1: Yeah. Do you have budget? (laughs) Do you have money for this? Do you have a timeline for this? Is there a project supporting this? Can we get it done by X date? Oftentimes, people don't want to ask those very specific questions, but often, in my experience, you just end up churning and churning and churning if you don't actually have an end goal in mind together with the person you're working with.
0: How do you ask the budget question? I mean, everyone struggles with that, right? Like, but...
1: I don't know. In Minnesota, people don't like to talk about money; it's a thing. So, it honestly, it's where you have to push yourself out of your comfort zone and be willing to ask. And it's not pushy. It's it's one of those things that if you take, if you've already met and you've built a little credibility, it's not going to come across pushy if you simply ask, is this in your budget or your timeline in the next six months? Because they don't want to spend time cycling either. Yeah. So let's be mutually beneficial and have some of those conversations earlier on than waiting until, you know, a proposal's on the table and then they say, oh, well, I can't do that now.
0: Yeah. And, I, and, I, and, I, and, and that has to happen. I mean,
2: if, yeah. if you don't ask that okay, that's good. Mitch, what do you, you... Yeah, you know, it's, uh, I, I, I holistically agree with, with everything you're saying. You know, from, from my standpoint, uh, being in the early stage and startup world, the first and foremost is being authentic. There's a lot of early stage companies and there's a lot of entrepreneurs uh, out there that are, I think, geared for the, all the right reasons, meaning uh, this isn't about, you know, making a, a gazillion dollars, right? There's right. A, a identified market need, and the, uh, the product set came as inspiration based on market need. So, rather than looking at it as you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna be a an, uh, an, a startup guy or startup gal and, yeah. uh, and look to uh, revolutionize uh, revolutionize the world just based on pure profit, it truly comes from from business need. Uh, so, staying authentic to uh, to
0: that approach. So, something that we'll share with the world now is I, you know we have our Closer's Club. It's our newsletter. Like we've got our Closer's Clinic coming out. We've got our Copying Closer's. That's kind of facetious because closing doesn't come from some. Manipulation tactic. It's by doing the things that you say you're going to do ahead of schedule, without waiver, and doing them with integrity, and so on. So, with that, you know, no one closes anything, right? Without without a genuine relationship. And you guys, have... I can't wait to get in even deeper. You guys have already talked about this. You've already dispelled the suits show or the Wolf of Wall Street shows. That's all a bunch of bullshit. We're right?
1: all wearing jeans right now. Yeah, <laughs> it's
0: true. It's true. That's not even close. Deals. You do it how you guys have done it. So, I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. You know, genuine relationship. The, the folks that are listening, some of them, let, let's say they have relationships, but they've never leveraged those relationships with this new thing they just are about to launch. So h- how do you guys talk about building genuine relationships from the dark, from, from nothing pre-existing or existing, and how would you advise them with no brand or familiarity how to, how to build this level of trust?
2: Yeah, from, from my standpoint, I mean, this has been something, Mickey, that uh, that I've been working on for you know nearly two decades, right? Yeah. Uh, and you know this about, um, about my MO, you know, it starts with being authentic. Like I mentioned before, right? Uh, you, uh, I've, I've always had a personal mission of, of leaving people better than when I found them. And so it's like uh, an analogy on all of our teams is always look at making deposits in the bank uh, because strategically, it's a scenario where you know when when a, a withdrawal opportunity comes, you've uh, you've done what you've needed to do from a relationship standpoint. So every opportunity that we've had as an early stage company to uh, get face to face to connect with influencers of all shapes and sizes, we jump at the chance, right? But we don't go in with self-serving needs. We go in with the idea, in the same way you've built this this enterprise with BBG, is we go in with the the, the idealism around what can we do for you. Um, I learned early on from one of my mentors that business almost becomes a byproduct of uh, of, of the process, right? And for us, it's it's resulted in, in great things. That's great, man. Thank you. Yeah.
1: I would say two key things. I actually think that research and listening are two incredibly important things when you're trying to get situated and where you think you fit and how you think you can make a sale kind of thing. You know, you're going to lunch with a potential new client, Google them, research them. And I think, you know, as much as we all kind of laugh about, oh, that's such so common sense, I actually don't think everyone does it. I think it's, it's, you know, we maybe do it at the surface level, but dig in that second or third layer. Try to understand their business and understand, like you're saying, the value to them, not necessarily what you think your own value is. And then listening, going from understanding a little bit about them to tell me more about yourself, right? And and finding out where they think they need help or where they think you can add value and shaping yourself into that versus just staying kind of on what you perceive yourself to be. Wait
0: a minute, are you saying like, the secret sauce is actually caring. About <laughs> the things. Like, yeah, is that what it is?
1: being relevant? Yeah, I
0: mean, isn't that wild? Like, so a friend of mine, Casey Allen, he does enterprise rising locally. He turned me into a tool called a company. And a company basically takes all their social stuff and puts it together so you can learn a little bit. And when he first told me about this, I laughed. I was like, "Well, why would?" I mean, obviously, people Google people before they have a cup of coffee, right? And he's like, "You'd be shocked." Just that simple thing, and it's like. How do you build relationships? How do you build your friend group? You are probably going to find similar interests, so why would you treat business any other way? That's good advice. Thank you, guys.
1: You know that I do it because I found out that we had a, a mutual friend via Facebook stalking you. When
0: yeah. You Before we, we uh, partnered up, uh, we – I mean, saw his no. name and
1: I looked, at it, I looked him up and I found him and I was like, oh, I went to elementary school with your cousin.
0: Yeah, my cousin. That's Andy. a great example. That's and great my cousin who doesn't live yeah. anywhere near me. So immediate
1: broke, common ground.
0: Yeah, and that was one of those things. I was like, oh, I didn't know you know that little thing. Now yeah. hooks us in a little bit, and and we've been friends, I and mean, we haven't talked in years, and we're still friends. Like like we never skipped a beat. For you, Bits, and I, I know this for a fact, being part of the start community. Like a lot of your best friends today are probably clients, right? Like yeah. a lot of my really good friends of today are clients, and that speaks exactly what you just said. So. I got to get a little more technical, and and this is for our listeners and a little selfishly because I want to hear your guys' styles. But um, we talked about it a little bit at the beginning, but it's qualification. At BBG part of the thing that I think why we've been able to advance deals the way we have is because we unqualify. I'm looking for every reason, anything possible that could go wrong. Because when you're when we're dealing with companies within the two to twenty million dollar space, I mean it's different than you know the big Oracle and IBM days, but. I want to hear, because I've seen you do it, Lindsay, firsthand. I've seen you do it firsthand, Mitso. um Qualifying is the key of identifying who is genuinely interested. And um, a lot of people, they, they waffle around this. So would you guys mind sharing maybe uh, your qualification process? And we can go along in this. So maybe qualifying questions that you guys leverage, qualifying process. What helps you guys cut through the
1: noise? Well, I always laugh. Someone, people will tell me, well, this person's not getting back to me, but they really want to buy this. And I'm like, they don't really want to buy it. They're not getting back to you, you know? So I actually think the first thing is responsiveness. I mean, I I genuinely believe that if people are interested in something and they want to do business with you, they're going to be responsive. They're going to respect you and have mutual respect for for what they hope to be a partnership. I actually think that that's a really big one. I I don't spend a lot of time probably against my... uh, management desire. I don't spend a lot of time on you know prospecting people that haven't been responsive to me. I focus on the things that I think I can move forward. And so when I think of qualification, I think bare bones, it's people that are responsive. And then furthering that to people that have actual projects, actual plans, actual things. Because I actually think, and probably particularly more in startup spaces, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I would assume that you the, you lose business more to companies doing or clients doing nothing then you do lose to competitors because if you're starting in a new space or you're offering a new value you're going to be both educating a new customer but you're out there there's no competition so the competition is doing nothing because if if, you, if what you're doing isn't mainstream then people don't have this necessarily the sense of urgency they would. Can I
0: expand on something because yeah. I have not heard anything this is not heard anyone say it out loud, and I don't know if people do this, but it, it sounds like you do, and I don't know if you realize what you said. Is, it sounds like you put maybe new clients, new prospects, maybe up against a couple tests, responsiveness in yeah. yours. Because you're thinking, especially at the deal sizes that you're bringing home, you've got to have people that are in it with you, like a partnership. Like
1: daily. I mean, I, I talk to people daily when I'm closing large deals. And so if you go weeks and someone's not responsive, I'm moving on. Huh, that's horrible.
0: Uh, okay, I want to hear more about this. Like, this is so interesting to me. I've never heard anyone say that. Like, you know, people because people, especially right in startup space, and you know better than any of us in this room is, yeah. in the beginning, you're like, no, 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 no. Uh, uh, how about a discount? Or oh, you don't want to get back to me for weeks and while I don't sleep for those two weeks because I need this deal so bad.
1: Like, how? I mean, Mm -hmm. I'm not saying I've never sent an unsolicited bid, but for the most part, if you're not working with me, pretty much every large deal I've closed, I have put two options on the table. You don't do this deal, or you do the deal. And if you don't do this deal, it's going to cost you just as much, or it's going to eliminate the value, and you're going to, over the five-year period, you're going to spend more, whatever. Or you can do the deal. You get more value better payment stream, whatever the value you've built into your options, and they, they can decide. But the big thing, I think, is building a realistic view of what they think their five-year projection is. So if they agree with that, and you can give them an option that's better than that, yeah. it makes it much easier for them to go along with what you need them to do.
0: That's awesome. I mean, it's setting the stage. It's basically, how is this relationship, how is this marriage going to go? Right. If you're not getting back married
1: away... That's why you always get a prenup.
0: I've never ah, I love it. I love it. Lindsay. I just learned that from you. I, I think that's great, Mitz. Yeah, you know, from uh, first off, brilliant.
2: Really, I I I agree with with everything that you said, and that's uh, that's you know, we try to implement a lot of those strategies even at the stage that we're at. You know, our our world uh, being an early stage company, uh, and we've seen it with others as well. Is you know, you have some early success and you have some early wins. You know, you've got a good product, you've got a good team, you've addressed a a, a good market opportunity. And it's almost like there's a false sense of reality that comes with some early success, right? We went through that. Um, our business model was, you know, full transparency, I'm sitting amongst friends, was opportunistic, right? Yeah. We, uh, we wanted to be a real company, but we weren't operating like a real company, right? Who were, who were we selling to? Who was our ICP? Not anybody that wanted to buy from us, right? And you talked a little bit about your BBG experiences right. early on, right? Selling to certain customers that probably aren't a good fit, right? I think we've grown enough now to implement a lot of things that Lindsay's talking about of, One, being able to hold these folks accountable via upfront contracts or so on and so forth, but also from our side, being able to sometimes walk away from opportunities that just aren't a good fit for us. You guys both know this well. There's times that we've spent way more time from a support standpoint, supporting some of our lowest paying customers because they're not a good fit than we do some of these behemoth organizations who are great fits for us, right, from a maintenance standpoint. So that's been been something for us. So one of the first things that we learned a couple years into this venture was all right, let's, let's get off of the, the, the soapbox of the, some of the early success that we've had. It was opportunistic, you're Rolodex selling, you're leveraging some relationships, so on and so forth. And let's let, let, let's let the market tell us where our value proposition lies, right? Let's let our customers tell us where they're driving ROI. Now we're a software company, but you know, uh, so in our, our case, it's, it's, it's sales and marketing software specific. So it's easy for us to determine, you know, user adoption, uh, KPIs specifically around driving revenue, so on and so forth but we needed to listen to the marketplace. We needed to let the marketplace drive how we were going to evolve as a company, how we were going to evolve as a product set, how we were continue to to revolutionize what we have identified as the biggest market opportunity in our space. Since we've done that, we've been off to the races, and it's uh, been fantastic. So now we've got structured customer success sessions that are specifically tied to NPS. We leverage voice of customer and driving product evolution, product enhancements,
0: et cetera, et cetera. So we've uh, we've grown into a real company. What's interesting about this guy is that, you know, you, you're the chief revenue officer and you're, you're blowing up, you know, but you also have, you know, these, these startups. So I would love to just ask a, a, a kind of flanker question. How does it help Fission? How does it help you, your, your growth there mm-hmm. by also building and mentoring and advising these other startups that you're pretty hands-on with from a sales growth perspective has it has it helped you you know because Vision's obviously much more established and bigger yeah. than advocate or whatever yeah. could you expand on that i think for some of our listeners I, I don't i don't think a lot of them know that about you yeah and kind
2: of- you know i so some of my personal experience you know when i originally launched the agency 360 yeah. you know uh, many moons ago matter of fact with you yeah uh you know one, one of the issues that we had early on we identified early on was scale right uh we talked about it, it was our white elephant in the room how are we going to build scale around this thing we knew we could be a disruptor in the space, even at a, at a local level to start, but how are we going to scale this thing long-term? So for a long time, that was the, uh, the, the million dollar question. You know, in the, in the agency world, a traditionally commoditized space that everybody's kind of doing the hustle for a lot of project-based work and so on and so forth. That experience uh, with 360 and all the consulting elements that we did around strategy really kind of helped me in preparation for the venture with vision Thinking about us obviously as a cloud-based SaaS. Thinking about us as a MarTech product, really geared towards top-end, mid-market enterprise companies. How do we think about scale as it relates to revenue? You know, for these organizations that we're serving. So now you turn that back into some of these organizations. Now that we've launched Advocate, et cetera, et cetera, scale is a top priority. So some of the some of the challenges that, that we went through together around building 360 originally,
0: uh, we've really been able to cut through a lot of the weeds on uh, on getting to that. So fourth times a charm. Where it probably helps. Once you do this, and I'm, I mean, I could say that right now with even graydock is like, you know, we had Odium. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I mean, you know, Odium was launched right after my IBM days, and now I just know for a fact that it helps It's helped BBG because we've had those other experiences, right? And we've helped a lot of startups grow, and so we've learned from their experiences. Right. Also, I learned from our clients as much as as, as we help them. They help us right. from a knowledge standpoint, vice versa. Well, and for
2: us, the other thing too, and and you know this well is. You know, leverage for a long time. So once we figured out how to, you know, really go to a target market that's really built for who our ideal audience is, then it's the idea of okay, well now we're now we're going to highly target, we're going to be highly strategic, we're going to be laser-guided killers. Yeah. From a go-to-market standpoint, specific to those particular industries and product sets or industry sets. But now, how do we leverage a stronger channel strategy, right? How do we leverage some quicker wins, shorten our sales cycle, so on and so forth? By and in our case, it happened to be. Partnering with agencies, partnering with complementary technology companies, i.e., Salesforce, Eloqua, Marketo, who are now bringing us in on opportunities. And, and we, you know, traditionally are a, call it nine to 12 month sales cycle. It's now three to four months based on some of these relationships.
0: You know, this isn't a question I sent to you, guys, so I'm just going to ask it, but because it kind of applies to you too with channel partners and MITS with you, you just described a channel partner. You know, some of these folks, because we have an affiliate arm of our business that rep- represents quite a bit of a business that we didn't realize, because, you know, we don't do certain things, but we have people that we rely on that do, and finally, you're like, hey, you know, can I give me a, they're shooting a lot of business, why don't we reciprocate, and they're cool with it. In your guys' world, that's a defined channel. For some of these listeners, that's that's a really neat avenue to, to consider versus going and having to hustle yourself the whole time, right? Uh, channel partners are a beautiful thing. Could you guys, first of all, explain what is a channel partner relationship, and how could somebody getting off the ground leverage a channel partner relationship to help grow their business?
1: In my world, a channel partner is defined, very specifically defined. So <laughs> I have very well-drawn parameters around who I use and how I use them and what in what capacities, and certain customers use certain channel partners and all that's defined. I think the interesting thing where this starts to get kind of to Jason's point is you have to know how you can get. Where you're going to get your revenue? Yeah, because using partners and using a cohesive network means nothing if you actually have not defined where you think your re- and how you think your revenue is actually going to flow into your organization. So, without that fundamental task being completed, it, I think that all feeds into if the channel market is the best way, or is it you know a partnership option that. Is just a kind of, in the beginning, just like the handshake, I'll send you leads, you send me leads kind of thing, or it doesn't have to be defined, or, but I think a lot of that goes back to just understanding what your actual revenue, the way you're going to make revenue for yourself, and then finding people to fit into your ecosystem that can accommodate your model.
0: Yeah, that's brilliant. That's great. Yeah.
2: Um, you know, and, and from our side, uh, you know, I think uh, going back to the authentic brand, it starts from, you know, you guys know this, is. I'm sitting with two people that really, you know, when, when you do these processes, right, and you're engaging these clients back in the enterprise days or doing the doing the early stage startup thing, you become consultants, you know? We're working with some of the smartest people at some of the largest brands on the planet, right? And yeah. these, these minds are leaning on you to be consultants in a variety of ways. And so for us, it's critically important, again, being authentic to the situation, not only the, the direct process but thinking about kind of the bigger picture around the equation. So for us, you take this region, right? There are so many talented folks in the early stage or startup community uh, in this town, in this building where we sit right now, right? You, you know, obviously you've, you've been working collaboratively with a lot of these organizations. For us, it goes back to this idea of that deposits of the bank scenario, right? Before I'm asking any of these now partners of ours, I am dumping, 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 dumping deposits, bringing them client opportunities, you know, introducing them to uh, to other connections that I have in my network, that there might be a mutual benefit of, of the relationship. Yeah. And that might go on for periods of time that are tenured periods of time. So the withdrawal opportunity may take a while, but it comes, and when it comes, it comes big, and it's exponential. You guys know this well, too. I mean, we've been in these careers for as long as we have. I know all of us right now could probably pick up our phone and, and text or call, again, some of the smartest minds on this planet based on some of the business and the way we've done it. So the, the dedication, the time, uh, the authentic component to building that authentic brand is exponential, but it pays big, big dividends in the end. We'll stay with it.
0: So I would love to hear, and, and if you guys can remember, one of the hardest deals in recent memory. Right? We're going to cover no's and how to overcome an objection. Uh, maybe a negotiation that went sideways, or something that was very challenging that you overcame and you won that business. You don't have to be any specific, but just kind of. They're all
2: pretty easy for Lindsay, so I don't know if she has uh, much uh, insight as far as a challenging one. She's kind of like dominos. Maybe when I when did I lose a deal? This is true. This is six years ago. Yeah, this is the Kraken calling. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And SOWs just get sent over. So Kraken
0: dropping. It's Kraken. I'm in your
1: lobby. I'd like that contract today. Well, we haven't (laughs) reviewed it yet. but I'm in your lobby. So, so we can do this the easy just, way or the yeah, easier way. Yeah. <laughs> bring it on down. No, I, I mean, all, I would say I actually find it more rare to have a deal that goes smoothly the entire way through. It is incredibly rare if you're talking in the millions of dollars that somewhere someone along the way doesn't call you to the carpet on some particular component in the deal. Yeah. Or say, we can't do this or you know, has an objection, or the approval process, or someone, you know, is worried about the technical piece, or if that didn't happen, I I would actually say that's rare for everything to just go smoothly. Okay. But I think that's part of why I truly believe in asking some of those tough questions. Yes. Because if you have a common goal with a key sponsor, it is so much easier to overcome those challenges, the peripheral challenges become tasks Mm -hmm. instead of Showstoppers. Right. So I, I more take the approach of I have an internal sponsor with my customer, and that sponsor will help me overcome those internal challenges that we might face together as a partner. Yeah, I dig it.
0: Well, and, you know, we're, we're talking about startups and your stuff, but I, I I, can say I've sold for IBM and I've sold for startups through yep. the start my BBG community. I can tell you it's almost... It's almost harder to sell for a big behemoth because people, they know you, and therefore they have their opinions, and they have stories of someone screwed them over at some point, and now yeah. you've got to overcome that. So it's like you almost start, you know, you start in... The
1: it, negative. Yeah, you start in the negative, and
0: then you have, to, you have to work your way up. So that's good stuff. Thanks for sharing that. Mitz what do you what do you got? Yeah, you know, from from our side, I think
2: uh, one of the challenges, and I keep going back to some of the learnings that we had, you know, early on with, with what we're doing is... Yeah, well, one, you know, the best salespeople I know are teachers, right? So yeah. Lindsay talked about kind of the personalized approach to the process, and I agree, it is very rare. We get prospected, we all of us do, by uh, salespeople, you know, all the time. It's amazing the the generic nature to the process, right? To the yeah. point that when it happens on a personalized nature, you're almost like, I almost need to have a conversation with this guy, even if I'm not in the market yeah, for what wasn't they're selling. A right, right, just based on some creative thinking, right? <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> But so you know, for for us, you know, we we came like you guys with BBG, right? You you identified this need in the marketplace. It wasn't motivated by by building a gazillion dollar company. It was about serving a practical purpose. You're very excited. Lindsay and I were talking about this, uh, you know, before you came and greeted us at the, in the lobby. But you're so passionate about it. you're so you believe in this concept so so well, so naturally that 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 kinetic energy that what you bring, yeah. Uh, we believe it too. You know what I mean? Uh, now we happen to know you, so we believe it. But anybody who's around you believes in in what you're telling them because you're, you believe it to the, to the level you do. Thank the you. challenge that, that we had doing that is we get so excited. And again, as a software platform, we get so excited about all the bells and whistles, right? So we would sit down with prospects, even real prospects that are identified customer profile prospects, and we would totally abandon everything from a strategic sense of solution selling or whatever. And we would feature dump all over the place. Yeah. Because we're so excited about ABC, XYZ, so on and so forth, right? And we had to learn quickly to you know, sell through the lens of the buyer, and so, for us, it was a matter of, let's slow down, uh, let's understand the complexity and the scale of, of all the, the, the solutions that we offer, but let's tailor how we do it to the specific needs of the prospect. And for us, again, it sounds simple, basic blocking and tackling, but it revolutionized not only how we go to market, but our close rates at every stage in the sales process. So,
1: oh. I, ca- I talk about a lot the two tracks, the technical track and the, the actual licensing track, yeah. like what it means. And I very often like to separate the two, so I actually do, I try not to have both discussions in the same meeting. That's smart. That, yeah, that's smart. I like that. that. But when that, that? but I mean, for startups, with I have the luxury, <laughs> I have the luxury of being able to do that because I have teams of people that have different responsibilities. If you have that same responsibility, it is harder to take one hat off and put the other one on. But I think trying to be mindful of that instead of blurring the lines on the technical win versus the you know, investment win, um, it can sometimes add clarity again to the qualification too if someone's really gonna move forward.
0: That's a good point though, because, because we first started getting into, we, we do B2B professional services and technology companies now, but we started it was only technology companies and a lot of them were technical founders and so you'd you'd have that first meeting and it would be exactly what you just well it wouldn't be. It would be the opposite. It would be basically they would jam it all into one meeting yeah. and then go. I think we won that business because I always want to ride along to see what you
1: people know. really liked the technology, so they must be ready to and buy. Like, yeah, but
0: you didn't even mm-hmm. talk about their. Right. There's we did not identify what their pain is currently. Like we have no yeah. clue how serious they are about resolving this. Yeah,
1: I no. thought this would be good with
0: you too, but it was exceeded my expectations. So I got one more question that I got to ask, um, just because of who we're we're defining. If you were to go back and, and be in these people's position, right? They're, okay, they, they, they got something. They believe in it. They believe in it, right? They know that it's good. What would you tell? What would you tell yourself in their in their shoes, not knowing what you know now?
1: The passion is required, but the business plan is often forgotten. So, actually uh-huh. develop a business plan so that you have an objective and you meet objectives versus hoping to maybe close client business.
0: Huh. So you have
1: something to try to achieve. You have something to track to. You can make adjustments along the way. Um, but I, when I talk to people that move into startup spaces or pre-IBM when I was with a smaller company, it was often like, okay, but why would we want this customer if the support for the customer is going to cost more than they're going to pay? And people were like, well, why? wait, what? It's like the business plan has to be there. Passion is required. I think anyone in that space, that's natural. I think yeah. that it has to be natural. People don't do it. But I think the business plan piece is often thought of as it will come. And I, from what I've seen from friends, you know, workers yeah. in the space, it, you need to have a plan, which is not going to be as natural, but it's certainly important. Yeah, that's great
0: advice.
2: Yeah, and I, in, in addition to everything Lindsay's saying, I would just say, um, um, understand, I guess, holistically that this, especially in the early stage entrepreneurship side of the equation, making you know this well, it's a bumpy ride, right? Yeah. There's good days, there's bad days, good quarters, bad quarters, good years, bad years, and you're going to question it at every stage in the process. Am I doing the right thing? Should I be doing the right thing? Believe in yourself. Keep Continue to push through, right? There's thresholds of growth. Even before fundraise rounds start, and team building starts, and leadership, sustainability starts, there's going to be those times where you're going to need to to push through and really stay laser guided on on the mission. Um, We're all consumers of content. Uh, It's very easy for especially early stage companies to consume content of other early stage companies and think, well, ABC is doing it so well, and they make it look so easy. XYZ is doing it so well, making it look so easy, hiring people, getting acquired, uh, raising big fundraising rounds, so on and so forth. You and I know somebody who just raised a bunch of cash here just recently, and you and I also know what the grind that he went through to, uh, you know, to achieve that. Yeah. It's a grind, so
0: hold on for the ride. It's a hell of a ride. That's a hell of a lot of fun. Amen. I can't believe I get to do this for a living. I can't believe this is my <laughs> job. Like you, you guys are so impressive, and this is beyond expectation. So thank you guys for sharing what you did. Uh, I loved every second of that. Well, friends, that is the end of episode two. Before we part, I want to give a big thanks to my friends over at tech.mn, my amazing Bedore Business Group team, our wonderful sponsor, field Collective, and of course, local music legend, Alex Rossi, for letting us use one of my favorite tracks of his album, Echoes from the Arches. Go pick it up. Episode three is next. See you there.